final toledot, the final, the account of, which is Jacob's family. And so uh, before we dig into that, though, let's, uh, let me just read this illustration to you. It's from uh, Gangle and Bramer, their commentary, the Holman Old Testament commentary. And uh, I don't know which one of these two writers wrote this, but it was one of those two. <clears throat> it says this, A number of years ago, when I needed a kidney transplant, my Jewish nephrologist asked me a soul-searching question. Do you know anyone who would give you a kidney? Well, I grew up in a wonderful Christian home with both my parents and three brothers and three sisters. I knew they loved me, but I must admit that when that question was asked, all sorts of strange thoughts went through my mind. Many of them had to do with how I had acted toward my brothers and sisters in earlier days, right? My parents did not uh, spoil me, but I acted spoiled in many instances. Now uh, they reared their ugly memories in my mind. It's like, oh no. Like, it makes us think, doesn't it? For just a moment, like, how have I treated my family growing up? My brothers and sisters, if you had those. My other family members, my, even maybe my cousins. And so, you know, it made me think, how have I acted toward my siblings? How have I acted toward fellow students growing up? And I remember years ago when I first started using Facebook, I began connecting with fellow students from Shippensburg. Now, while I didn't graduate from there, I grew up with a lot of those kids. Um, and so when I friended one particular person, they eventually sent me a message sharing something that I had said that hurt them. Now, I didn't remember the comment or the situation at all, uh, but they couldn't forget it because I had hurt them. And I had the privilege of uh, apologizing and asking them for forgiveness after 20-plus years. I had no idea that that was there. I had no idea that my words had affected this person that way. So how have I acted toward colleagues that I've worked with? How have I acted toward fellow Christians that I've worshipped with? And so those are questions I want you to ponder a little bit today as we dive into this passage of Scripture. Perhaps all of us can and should ask ourselves the same questions. How have we acted toward our parents and siblings? How have we acted toward fellow students that we grew up with? How have we acted toward colleagues that we've worked with? How have we acted toward fellow Christians that we've worshipped with? How have we acted toward our neighbors? In Genesis chapter 37, we're going to see how Jacob's family members acted toward each other. There were some dynamics in Jacob's family that motivated some strong feelings by his sons. And we begin today to see what caused some of the strong feelings, and next week we will see what happens when those strong feelings go unchecked. And so what we're going to learn over the next two weeks is this big idea of unchecked hatred leads to greater sin. That's so important. This unchecked hatred is just going to lead to greater sin in our lives. And so you allow that... A uh, big idea to kind of sink in this morning. Would you just bow your heads with me as we just commit this passage to the Lord in prayer? Lord, we come to you today, and perhaps we've already started thinking in our hearts and minds of family members or, or, or friends, school friends or colleagues that we worked with or people we've worshipped with or our neighbors, Lord God, that uh, we haven't treated so well. And so we just confess that before you this morning, Lord God. We ask that you would just bring healing. Lord, if would you even allow us the opportunity to apologize? And so, Lord, we, we come to you in humility and, and ask that, uh, that 
that you pour out your grace and mercy on us today as we really address this, this issue of hatred. Lord God, I pray that you would speak by your Holy Spirit. I, I don't want these people to hear my voice at all today, Lord. I am, I am nothing. I am no one. I'm simply your mouthpiece. I pray that you would transform us today. That we would take the steps that you desire us to take. That you would be honored and glorified. That you would bring restoration and healing. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 37 in the book of Genesis. This is what God's word says. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, um, the land of Canaan. And so some scholars have, have verse 1 uh, of chapter 37 with the Esau episode that we just completed, that genealogy. Some of them just put it right there at the end. Others have it as part of chapter 37. It's definitely a transitional statement to take us from the account of Esau to the account of Jacob. We've just come off of this um, totally dot about um, Esau and his descendants, and now we're moving into this one of Jacob. And so Walton informs us that Jacob has been in Canaan for about a decade at this point. So he's lived in the land where his father stayed, which is the land of Canaan. He's been there about 10 years when this is all uh, being communicated, when this narrative is being talked about. Uh, Kyle and Dillich tell us this, verse 1 implies that Jacob had now entered upon his father's inheritance and carries on the patriarchal pilgrimage life in Canaan, the further development of which was determined by the wonderful career of Joseph, as we're going to see for the rest of Genesis. Verse 2, just the first half of that says this then, this is the account of Jacob. That's that same Hebrew word that we've been talking about all throughout the book of Genesis. The Hebrew word is toledot. And uh, it means the account of, you know, the, the descendants of. It has a whole bunch of different meanings. Um, but we kind of been sticking with the account of, uh, or the generations of. And so this is the final one in the book of Genesis. The remaining chapters of Genesis, chapters 37 through 50, will be talking about the sons of Jacob, specifically Joseph. And one of the major themes that we're going to see through the last 14 chapters of Genesis is the sovereignty and providence of God. That's really the primary theme. We're going to see some other things that we're going to talk about. We'll have other principles and things that will apply to our lives as believers. But the main thing that we have to get from these 14 chapters is that God is in control of his plan and purpose. And he's going to accomplish that regardless of what humanity does. So they're going to do some things, and God's going to take this negative thing that humanity does, and he's going to use it for his honor and his glory to accomplish his plan and purpose. That's what we're going to see. That's the main theme and purpose of chapters 37 to 50. And so you're going to hear that theme come up time and time and time again as we go through these last 14 chapters. Now, let's get into what's going on here with Jacob's family. Let's look at uh, the, the first point of favoritism. Verses, uh, the second half of verse 2 into verse 4. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. 
Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made, him, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So, last evening, uh, we, Judy and I had the privilege uh, of going to see the production of Bermudian Springs of uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, wow. And here we are. We're going to be talking just about that. The fact that it wasn't multicolored. And it wasn't, uh, yeah, anyhow. <laughs> it wasn't technicolored either. Interesting enough, uh, you hear in that, in that play, that musical, uh, I think it's Potiphar, uh, the character Potiphar says in there um, something about you can't always believe everything that you read in a book, except this one. And so I was joking around a little bit last night, is you can't believe everything you hear in a musical, like we saw last night, but anyhow, uh, it was a good, they did a good job. Bermudian Springs uh, students did a great job with the production, so anyhow, let's dive into this then. So we see some information about Joseph, right? We see his age. How old is he? 17 years old, that's right. What's his occupation? What's his job? Assistant shepherd. Assistant shepherd. Yeah, he's a junior shepherd, right? And what's his responsibility? They work with father and his brother's activities. That's right. Did you know that? That was his responsibility? Yeah. And now we, uh, we're not told what the bad report from Joseph included, but some speculation is that the brothers may have been robbing their father, Jacob, perhaps. You know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? Jacob was a little bit tricky in how he got his sheep from his father-in-law, uh, you know, that was kind of crazy. So perhaps it was that. Perhaps it was some unethical or ungodly behavior that they were doing. Maybe they were adopting the ways of the Canaanite people. And so when they were out on these long treks, uh, you know, taking care of the flocks away from home, they were doing, you know, interacting with the Canaanite women, perhaps, or who knows? We don't really know. We're just not told what's going on there, but whatever these uh, brothers were doing, Joseph recognized that his father needed to be informed. Now, some scholars uh, question whether Joseph was being a tattletale or following the will of his father. So here's a couple of uh, things to just think about. Throughout the remaining narrative about Joseph, we see that he is a man of character and that God um, is with him and helps him. I want you to keep that in mind. Even though he's 17 years old, he's, he's a young man of character, when sold into slavery to Potiphar, he worked hard and God allowed him to find favor in Potiphar's eyes, which resulted in Joseph becoming his personal attendant. And when he was approached by Potiphar's wife concerning being intimate with her, he rejected her and eventually had to flee from her, leaving his outer garment behind. When put in prison, he again worked hard and God allowed him to find favor in the warden's eyes, which enabled him to be put in charge of all the prisoners. When he was brought before, Pharaoh's, um, before Pharaoh, God gave him knowledge concerning Pharaoh's two dreams, which allowed him to be promoted to second in command in Egypt. And when Joseph's two dreams were fulfilled, he didn't lord that over his brothers or hold anything against them, but he forgave them. 
So it would seem like being a tattletale would not fit into the man of character that Joseph was. Was he following in the will of his father? The significance of the robe that Jacob gave Joseph will be discussed in just a moment, but perhaps it's part of why Joseph was following the will of his father when he brought the bad report against his brothers. The other indicator that Joseph was probably following the will of his father is what we will see next when Jacob sends Joseph to check up on his brothers and bring a report back to him. Just drop down to verse 14 of chapter 37. That's exactly what Jacob's asking him to do. He's like, I want you to go check on your brothers, and I want you to bring me a report back. What's going on? He's simply following the will of his father. So I believe that's what Joseph was doing. He wasn't this tattletale. He was this uh, young man of integrity, this young man of character who was following the will of his father. He cared more about his father than he did his brother's. And so the information about Joseph is important as we continue to unpack this narrative. We see Jacob's love here. We see favoritism that takes place here. Israel, another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. The reason given for his preferential love was that Joseph was born to him in his old age. Seems kind of shallow, doesn't it? (laughs) Just because he was born when Jacob was old, he loves him more? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But that's exactly uh, what happened. He was definitely born in his old age. Joseph and Benjamin would have been born in Israel, uh, born to Israel when he was older, because Rachel had been barren. And perhaps the favoritism of Israel for Joseph stems from the fact that um, he was the firstborn son of his favorite wife. Right? This is just carrying on. Genesis chapter twenty-nine, verse thirty. Uh, A, the first part of that says, Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. So we see that favoritism has been a part of his life. Some scholars believe that Israel looked to to Joseph as his quote-unquote real firstborn son that would inherit his estate because he was the firstborn son of Rachel, his favorite. Yeah, he'd had all these other sons, right? About, I think, seven to, to Leah and two to the other two maidservants each. And, and, uh, but then J- uh, Joseph and Benjamin come along to his favorite wife. It seems as though Jacob had not learned from his past the kind of hurt and damage playing favorites can create. Isaac and Rebekah's favoritism, we see, if you recall, Isaac favored Esau and Rebekah favored Jacob. And the competition that ensued brought about hard feelings between Jacob and Esau to the point that Esau was going to kill Jacob after their father died. And so, if you remember, Rebekah goes to Jacob and says, you need to leave. Go to my brother in Haran and stay there until I call for you. And then she dies. (laughs) She never calls for him. God calls to him and says, it's time to go home. There were continual competitive uh, competition, I should say, between his first and second wives because he loved Rachel more than Leah. Rachel bargained with Leah for her son Reuben's mandrakes because she thought there was some magical um, uh, part to mandrakes uh, to bring about uh, conception. That competition spread to Leah and Rachel's handmaids, uh, handmaidens being given to Jacob as two additional wives. Well, if I can't have my own children, Rachel says, then I'll just give you my maidservant uh, or handmaiden. Uh, Bilhah, and she can have children 
uh, for me. And then when Leah stops producing children, then she's like, well, Rachel did that, so I guess I'll do that too. So here's Zilpah. And so it just keeps spreading. Now we see that Joseph brought a bad report to Jacob about Bilhah and Zilpah's sons. So favoritism always creates heartache and hatred. So that leads us to our big idea that unchecked hatred leads to greater sin. Jacob should have known what would happen if he favored one child more than the others. Pascal, in his writing called Pensies, says this, The heart has its reasons, which reason cannot know. That makes no sense, right? But it's talking about the heart has its reasons, so it's our feelings, which reason cannot know. So like a logical mind can't comprehend the feelings of the heart. It's difficult for that, right? And that's why we can't rely on feelings only. We need to rely on facts. Golden Gay uh, says this in their commentary, Love unwittingly produces hate. It is the first instance of the pivot of irony upon which the entire plot of the Joseph story might be described as turning. The Jacob family illustrates the dynamics of many a family with someone loved too much, someone loving too much, and some people not feeling loved enough. Here's our first principle then today. Favoritism is always wrong. It's always wrong. We've seen it throughout Jacob's life, how favoritism was wrong. It creates hard feelings, resentment, competition, and hatred. The same is true for us in our relationships. Maybe as a parent, you're loving too much. Parents, have you ever found yourself favoring one of your children over the others? It can be easy to do, especially when some of your children are making decisions that are hurting themselves while others are not. It may not be favoritism that comes into play, but just a realization that certain children are more difficult to raise than others. Personality types also play a role in how we connect with each of our children, even the birth order. As a parent, you know, whatever birth order you were, it seems like you connect better, perhaps, with that birth order child. It takes intentionality in order to treat each of your children equally. And as parents, we may not even realize we are favoring one child more than the others. They can see it. We can't always see it. Perhaps an outside perspective would be helpful. If you're aware that you've been showing favoritism, then determine today to make the necessary changes. Those changes can heal wounds. I saw that with that friend of mine. It can create unity. It can express love. So the first next step today on the back of your communication card is to love all of my children equally. Now, if you only had one child, you are fortunate because you have loved your child or children equally, right? There's only one. So, but we need to love all of our children equally, no matter what they're doing or have done. Take time this afternoon to talk with them or call them and tell them how much you love them. And depending on your relationship with them, they may ask you if you're dying. <laughs> right? You just said you love me. What's going on? What kind of terminal illness do you have? 
just reassure them that you don't have a terminal illness, but that you love them. You genuinely love them. They might just be shocked that you do it because you haven't done it in a while. Maybe you're on the other side of this where you're not feeling loved enough. Perhaps you feel like Jacob's other son's not loved as much as another sibling. And I just want to tell you today, I'm sorry if that's actually happening in your family because it makes you have hard feelings towards your parents and the favored sibling. Sometimes our perspective can be skewed because we aren't aware of everything that's happening in another person's life. You may look at a sibling and go, wow, they're, just, they're mom and dad's favorite because they, they never did this or never did that. They did this, they always do this and they always do that. And the whole problem is that you don't always know what they've done and what they haven't done. You don't always know if they've been this little angel that you've made them up to be in your mind. Mom and dad know what's the whole story. So just give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. We may think we know, and from the outside, it looks like another brother or sister is being favored. I would just encourage you, don't be easily offended, but rather communicate with your parents. Let them know how you're feeling. Give them an opportunity to express how much they love you. Every one of us is susceptible to the view that the grass is always greener on the other side, right? We become concerned or consumed with wanting what another sibling has, whether it's relationships or intelligence or money or personality traits, and the list could go on and on and on. But when we allow ourselves to be consumed with what others have, we will always be discontent, angry, resentful, hateful, jealous, and envious. You see, unchecked hatred just leads to greater sin. God did not make a mistake when he created you. I want you to know that today. You are one of a kind. You are unique. You are valuable. Please, please hear that today. You have a heavenly father who loves you. Who loves you perfectly. He loves you with an everlasting love. He loves you so much that he sent his son, his one and only perfect son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you. So that you can have an eternal relationship with him. So maybe you didn't have a great relationship with mom and dad. But you have a heavenly father who does it perfectly. Turn to him. Especially if mom and dad are gone. So two next steps for you at this point. The first one is for children. Communicate with my parents that I'm feeling like they favor another sibling over me. Just be open and honest with them. Don't hesitate to do that. Let them know how you're thinking and feeling. They want to know. I want to know what my kids are thinking and feeling. The second or the third next step total, but the second one here is to forgive my parents for favoring another sibling over me. You can get set free. You can be set free, I should say, from the bitterness, anger, resentment, hatred, jealousy, and envy today. You can begin to heal from those wounds that have been festering for far too long. 
And the great thing is, is you will not have to you will not have unchecked hatred that leads to greater sin. Do that for your family today. Forgive them. You and I do not need to fall into the same cycle that Jacob did with his sons. He made it clear that Joseph was his favorite by giving him a special robe. The NIV calls it a richly ornated robe. So what were you taught about this robe? <laughs> Give me some answers this morning. It was a many-colored coat, right? And Yeah. Father Abraham had many sons. Yeah, we learned that. This... Uh, so let me give you some biblical translations, survival translations. What did it look like? Uh, again, the NIV says richly ornated. The King James, New King James, English Standard Version, and two other ones said it many colors. So, so we, we kind of get that background from. New American Standard and one other one says multicolored or very colored. The Revised Standard Version says long robe with sleeves. The Young's literal translation says long coat. The New Living Translation says beautiful robe. So what do biblical scholars have to say then? Because they're looking at the original languages, right? They say it's a full-length coat or a long-sleeved coat. They don't mention color. Another one says a long robe with sleeves. Still another says an upper coat reaching to the wrists and ankles, such as the nobleman and king's daughters wore. And finally, one says a coat or tunic with long sleeves. So we cannot know with certainty what the robe looked like. We don't know if it's multicolored. Because the Hebrew word uh, used for it is also, the only other place it's used is in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 18, which is talking about a long-sleeved robe that uh, king's daughters wore. It doesn't matter, really. That's not the important part. What did the robe represent? It was definitely not the uniform of a common shepherd, of an assistant shepherd, of a junior shepherd. Matthew says uh, Joseph's social standing had changed. It's significant that Joseph didn't, uh, it signified, I should say, that Joseph did not need to work. Walton says Joseph was in management now. Warren Wearsby says it was the rich garment of a ruler. So Jacob was definitely revealing his preferential love and favoritism for Joseph. And with that, we may, uh, he may have been signaling to his other sons that Joseph was his preferred heir. <laughs> Jacob was elevating Joseph in the eyes of the other family members. And so Jacob's favoritism had created hard feelings with his other sons. And we see the brother's attitude here. Joseph's brothers recognized that, jo that Jacob loved him more than any of them, which caused them to do two things. The first thing we see here is that they hated Joseph. And the second thing is that they speak harshly to him, but in reality it means that they wouldn't speak to him at all. It can be translated, could not, uh, as, could not so much as greet him, to even asking him, uh, what he was, or how he was doing, to offering him the usual greeting of shalom, peace be with you. Like, they're, they're giving him the cold shoulder. Or for our younger generation, they're ghosting him. They're like, mm-mm, we're not even going to talk to you. 
This is how deep the hatred went. And this unchecked hatred was going to go even further. The narrative then transitions to Joseph's two dreams. So let's look at the first one. We see it in verses 5 to 8. This is what God's word says. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated them all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf uh, rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And so what we see here, all of the brothers were binding sheaves of grain. Joseph's sheaf rose up and stood upright. His brother's sheaves gathered around his and bowed down to it. And so here's a couple of things to ponder. Why was Joseph even telling his brothers about his dream when he knew they hated him? This is probably not going to go over well, right? (laughs) Was it uh, youthful arrogance? I don't think so. Was it youthful enthusiasm and excitement? Perhaps. Was it God's sovereignty and providence? I believe so. Wolke says, This revelation at the beginning of the story shows God as the director behind the entire account. This is the first dream in the Bible in which God does not speak. We don't see God speaking here. Warren Wearsby says, This wasn't adolescent enthusiasm. It was the will of God. In our human intellect, it does not make sense, but in God's will, it makes perfect sense. He is the director of the entire situation in which Joseph is taken to Egypt. This is the first step in that process. God had a plan and purpose. He knew the future. He is eternal. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows that there's this famine coming, and that it's going to affect Canaan. And so he's working out his plan and purpose. And even though we don't understand it in our humanness, in God's will and his sovereignty, it makes sense. What did the sheaths represent? So these shepherds um, weren't just shepherds, perhaps. Some scholars believe that Jacob's family also did some farming. It was perhaps how they fed their family. And farming would have been a secondary occupation to shepherding. But perhaps it's foretelling the future. As the story of Joseph unfolds, we'll see that one of Pharaoh's dreams includes heads of grain, Genesis chapter 41, verse 22. And it is Joseph's wisdom concerning reserving grain for seven years that saves Egypt and his own family. We see that in uh, Genesis 41, 48. And it's likely that this first dream is foretelling the future for Joseph. And so what did this dream mean? It meant that Joseph was going to have supremacy over his brothers at some point in his life. He doesn't know when. He just knows that there's, that's what's coming. One commentator says, The prophecy is fulfilled in escalating stages. The brothers initially bowing once in uh, Genesis 42.6, then bowing twice to honor him in uh, Genesis 43.26 and 28, and finally throwing themselves at his feet in chapter 50, verse 18. Remember that Joseph's brothers were, are, already hated him. And so we see their reaction here. The brothers questioned the validity of Joseph's dream by asking him two questions. Do you intend to reign over us? And will you actually rule us? Remember the long coat that Jacob gave Joseph? It was already a sign that he did not need to work 
like his brothers and that he was their foreman or ruler? With Jacob's favoritism already in play and now Joseph's divine dream elevating him to ruler status, the brothers aren't happy. They hated him even more. Notice that the words, they hated him all the more, open and close this first dream narrative. It's the narrator mentions it twice. And so unchecked hatred leads to greater sin, as we're going to see. Perhaps their hatred, first expressed in verse 4, has turned into bitterness. We know uh, that their hatred has deepened. It has become more pronounced. They hated him even more. There is a progression that's taking place. And then Joseph has a second dream. Let's look at that in verses 9 to 11. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Poor guy. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to him. Joseph tells his brothers and his father for the same reason he told his brothers the first dream. It was according to God's will and plan. And what did the dream mean? Joseph's supremacy would not only be over his brothers, but also over the whole house of Israel. Walton says the inclusion of his parents suggests Joseph's eventual prominence in the ancestral line, superseding even his parents in significance. And so we know from the rest of the story that Joseph has supremacy over all the Egyptian citizens and people of neighboring countries. They're coming to him to ask for grain. Now, an interesting feature of the rest of Genesis is that all the dreams that happen come in pairs. Joseph received two dreams together, which signified that God had made up his mind about this, his situation and that it would take place, it would happen. And we'll, we'll see the remaining two dreams in Genesis will come in pairs also. Pharaoh's attendants, the baker and the um, cupbearer, going to come in pairs, and then Pharaoh's dream himself comes in pairs with the fat and the, uh, the thin uh, uh, cows and then the fool and the, and the kind of weak uh, heads of grain. Joseph not only shares the, the second dream with his brothers, but he also shares it with his father now. We see his father's reaction. First, his, his first reaction is that he rebuked him. Jacob's initial reaction is to say, what do you think... The, what are, you th- what are you talking about? You really think we're all going to bow down to you? And it was probably out of shock at hearing that Joseph was going to rule over the entire household of Jacob that Jacob rebuked him. But one other thing that Jacob does that his sons don't do is that he keeps the matter in mind. After his initial reaction, Jacob spends time thinking about it. That's what Mary did in the passages that Jean read this morning. Do you remember hearing that? And she just... Kind of remembered those. Thought about them. This is what people have said about my son Jesus. What he's going to do. Who he's going to be. I think that's what Jacob is doing here. Gangle and Bramer say perhaps this occurred because Jacob knew the Lord could speak in dreams. It had happened to him, Genesis chapter 28, verses 12 to 16. And he also knew that the Lord's words in dreams came true. Jacob had experienced it. He's like, I better, this is pretty serious. I better pay attention. 
Finally, we see the brothers' reaction to the second dream. They were jealous of Joseph. Unchecked hatred leads to greater sin. Our second principle today is this. Jealousy or envy drives us to ruin others. Walton says they did not just want what Joseph had. They wanted to ruin him. They didn't want him to have it either. There's a difference between coveting something and envying or being jealous of something. Plantinga, cited by Walton, explains that difference to us. What an envier wants is not, first of all, what another has. What an envier wants is for another not to have it. To covet is to want somebody else's good so strongly that one is tempted to steal it. To envy is to resent somebody else's good so much that one is tempted to destroy it. The coveter has empty hands and wants the and yeah, and wants to fill them with somebody else's goods. The envier has empty hands and therefore wants to empty the hands of the envied. Envy, moreover, carries overtones of personal resentment. An envier resents not only somebody else's blessing, but also the one who has been blessed. And that's exactly what Joseph's brothers wanted to do to him. They wanted to destroy what had been given to him both physically and through the dreams. So where are you at today? Are you envious or jealous of someone? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a fellow student. Maybe it's a colleague at work. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a fellow Christian. Have you allowed your hatred to go unchecked, which has driven you to envy and jealousy? Do you wish that the person you are jealous of would fail and not have that thing? Have you actually tried to ruin someone that you're jealous of? I want to encourage you to repent of your hatred and jealousy today. That's what needs to take place. Next, I would encourage you to begin the process of reconciliation with that person. My guess is that they already know that you hate them because you haven't been talking to them. And so that final next step today might be the step you need to take, and that's to repent of my hatred and jealousy and seek to restore the relationship. Boy, I could transform it amazingly. Just by way of review, do you need to love all of your children equally? Do you need to co communicate your feelings to your parents and forgive them for showing favoritism? Do you need to repent of your hatred and jealousy? You know, as a body of believers, we may, do, we, we may need to love all of our fellow Christians equally. We may need to communicate our feelings and forgive leadership for showing favoritism. We may need to repent of our hatred and jealousy. Now, growing up, I remember my grandma, John, sharing stories that Paul Harvey had shared on the radio. Some of you are like, I know who he is. Every day, he'd begin a broadcast with one of his catchphrases. Hello, Americans. I'm Paul Harvey. Then after he started his story, before the next break, he'd say, in a moment, the rest of the story. And at the end, very end, he would say, now you know the rest of the story. And conclude his radio show with, Paul Harvey, good day. Do you remember that? Can you hear it in your head? I can. Well, I want you to know the rest of the story from the introduction. You know that person was asked this soul-searching question of whether or not someone would give him a kidney. So this is the remainder of that story. You'll know the rest of the story now. I am humbled to write that my entire family expressed a willingness to share with me the needed kidney 
as members of the same family, my brothers and sisters, as well as my mother and father, acted in a way that honored the Lord and showed great love for me. Not all families act in such a loving, accepting way. Neither do all Christians. And when a family fails to act like a family, terrible consequences occur. Sometimes these consequences are far-reaching. And we're going to see next week what happens when Jacob's sons do not act in a loving way towards Joseph. They don't act like family. And so as uh, we just allow the message to sink into our hearts and minds today, would you just bow your heads and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you right now? Allow him to do the work that only he can do in your heart and mind. Tell him that you're willing to be transformed, to make changes. Just cry out to him this morning. Ask him to help you to love, to forgive, to not hate. So, Lord, we come to you as a body of believers today, seeking healing from you, because we are broken. And, Lord, I pray that you would just move by your spirit. You would do the work that only you can do. That you would transform us to be more like your son, Jesus. And we'll be sure to give you the praise and glory. Lord, we also ask that you would just be with with, uh, tithes and offerings as we prepare to gather those as well. Would you help us to give out of a heart of love and to do it sacrificially because we are giving to you. Now, Lord, we ask all this in your precious Son's name. Amen.